0: Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, very brief housekeeping today, once again. Just a reminder that if you're using the Waking Up app, your reviews and feedback are greatly appreciated. Please put reviews in the App Store, and please send detailed feedback, whether it's feature requests or bug reports, directly to us at info at wakingup.com. And again, all of that is super helpful. Okay. Well, today I'm bringing you the audio from my live event with Danny Kahneman at the Beacon Theater in New York a couple of weeks back. This was a sold-out event in a very cool old theater. I'd actually never been to the Beacon before, but it has a storied history in music and comedy. Anyway, it was a great pleasure to share the stage with Danny. Daniel Kahneman as you may know, is an emeritus professor of psychology at Princeton University and also an emeritus professor of public affairs at Princeton's Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. He received the Nobel Prize in Economics in 2002 for the work he did on decision-making under uncertainty with Amos Tversky. Unfortunately, Tversky died in 1996, and he was a legendary figure who would have certainly shared the Nobel Prize with Danny had he lived longer. They don't give the Nobel posthumously. In any case, I think it's uncontroversial to say that Danny has been the most influential living psychologist for many years now, but he's perhaps best known in the general public for his book Thinking Fast and Slow, which summarizes much of the work he did with Tversky. Michael Lewis also recently wrote a biography. Of the Kahneman Tversky collaboration, and that is called the Undoing Project. Anyway, Danny and I covered a lot of ground at the Beacon. We discuss the replication crisis in science, systems one and two, which is to say automatic and unconscious cognitive processes, and more conscious and deliberative ones. We talk about the failure of intuition, even expert intuitions, the power of framing. Moral illusions, anticipated regret, the asymmetry between threats and opportunities, the utility of worrying, removing obstacles to wanted behaviors, the remembering self versus the experiencing self, improving the quality of gossip, and many other topics. Anyway, Danny has a fascinating mind, and I think you'll find this a very good introduction to his thinking. Of course, if you want more, his book, *Thinking Fast and Slow*, also awaits you if you haven't read it. And now I bring you Daniel Kahneman.
1: That's unusual.
0: Well, well, thank you all for coming. Really, an honor to be here. It's a, Danny, it's a special honor to be here with you. So thank you for coming.
2: My pleasure. Uh,
0: It is, it's, uh, it's often said and rarely true that a guest needs no introduction, but in your case, that is uh, it's virtually true. But We're gonna talk about your work throughout, so people will, if they, if the, for the one person who doesn't know who you are, you will understand at the, at the end of the hour. But I guess by way of introduction, I just wanna ask, but what, what is the worst thing about winning the Nobel Prize?
2: That's uh, a hard question, actually. There weren't many downsides to it.
0: Okay, well, nobody wants to hear your problems, Dan. <laughs> so, how, would you, how do you think about your body of work? How do you summarize the intellectual problems you have tried to get your hands around?
2: You know, it's been just a series of... Problems that occurred that I worked on, there was no big program. When you look back, of course, I mean, you see patterns and you see ideas that have been with you for a long time. But there was really no plan. I was, you know, it's, you, follow, you follow things, you follow ideas, you follow things that you take a fancy to. Really, that's a story of my intellectual life. It's just one thing after another.
0: Judging from the outside, it seems to me that you have told us much of what we now think we know about cognitive bias and cognitive illusion. And really, the, the, the picture is, is of human ignorance having a kind of structure. It's not, it's not just that we get things wrong. We get things reliably wrong. And because of that, whole groups, markets, societies can get things wrong because the, the errors don't cancel themselves out. I mean, bias becomes systematic, and that obviously has, has implications that, are, that touch more or less everything we care about. Let, let's just, I want to track through your work, you know, as presented in, in your now famous and well-read book, Thinking Fast and Slow, uh, and I just want to try to tease out what should be significant for all of us at, the, at this moment, because, they, uh, you know, human unreason, unfortunately, becomes more and more relevant, it seems, uh, and we don't get over these problems. Uh, and I guess I wanted just to, to, to begin to ask you about a problem that's very close to home now, this, what is called the, the replication crisis or reproducibility crisis in science, in particular social sciences and in particular psychology. And for those in the room who are not aware of what has happened and how dire this seems, it seems that when you go back to even some of the most celebrated studies in psychology, their reproducibility is on the order of 50, 60 percent in the best case. So there was one study done in that took 21 papers from Nature and Science, which are the most highly regarded journals, and reproduced only 13 of them. And so I, I just, let's, let's talk about the problem we face in even doing science in the first place?
2: Well, I mean, you know, the the key problem and the reason that this happens is that research is expensive. And it's expensive personally, and it's expensive in terms of money. And so you want it to succeed. So when you're a researcher, you know what you want to find. And, and that creates biases that you're not fully aware of. And I think a lot of this is simply self-delusion. That is, uh, you know, there is a concept that's known as p-hacking, which is people very honestly deluding themselves about what they find. And there are several tricks of the trade that, uh, that you know people know about them you are going to do an experiment so instead of having one dependent variable where you predict the outcome you take two dependent variables and then if one of them doesn't work you stay with you, the one you, that does you work spare. Uh, you does yeah. uh, you, you do that and things like that a few times then it's almost guaranteed that your research would not be replicable. Mm. And that happens, it was first discovered in medicine. I mean, it's more important in medicine than it is in psychology, where somebody famously said that most published research in medicine is false. And, and a fair amount of, of published psychological research is false, too.
0: Yeah, even some of the, the most celebrated results in psychology, like, like priming and the marshmallow test and...
2: Well, in the yeah, I mean, it's yeah. not only, uh, it's actually, they get celebrated in part because because they're surprising. Yeah. And the rule is, you know, the more surprising the result is, the less likely it is to be true. And uh, so that's how celebrated results uh, get to be non-replicable.
0: Right. Well, and the scariest thing I heard, I don't know how... Uh, robust. This study was, but someone did a study on t- trying to replicate unpublished studies and found that they re- replicated better than published studies. Did you hear this?
2: I don't think that's replicable. Oh yes,
0: let's talk about System One and Two. These are the structures that give us so much of our uh, what can be a, d- a dispiriting picture of human rationality. Summarize for us, what, what are these two systems you, you well, talk about?
2: I mean, before starting with anything else, there are clearly two ways that ideas come to mind. I mean, so if I say 2 plus 2, then an idea comes to your mind. You haven't asked for it. It's, you're completely passive, basically. Something happens in your memory. If I ask you to multiply, you know, 24 by 17 or something like that, You have to work to get that idea. So it's that dichotomy between the associative effortless Mm. and the effortful. Uh, And that is phenomenologically obvious. You start from there. And how you describe it and whether you choose to describe it in terms of systems, as I did, or in other terms, uh, that's already a theoretical choice. And in my view, theory is less important than the basic observation of, you know, that that there are two ways for ideas to come to mind. And, and then you have to describe it in a way that that will be useful. And what I mean by that is you have to describe the phenomena in a way that, that will cause, help researchers have good ideas about facts and about experiments to run. And the system one and system two was, it's not my not my dichotomy, and even not my terminology, right. and in fact, it's a terminology that many people object to, but I chose it quite deliberately.
0: What are the liabilities? Because people, in your book, you try to guard against various misunderstandings of this picture. Well,
2: yes, I mean, you know, there is a rule uh, that you're taught fairly early in psychology, which is, and never to invoke what is called homunculi, which are little people in your head uh, whose behavior explain your behavior or explain the behavior of people. That's a no-no. And System 1 and System 2 are really homunculi. So I knew what I was doing when I, when I picked those. And, but the reason I did was that System 1 and System 2 are agents. They have personalities. And it turns out that the mind is very good at forming pictures and images of agents that have intentions and propensities and traits, and and they're active. And it's just easy to get your mind around that. And that's why I picked that terminology, which many people find sort of objectionable because they are really not agents in the head. It's just a very useful way to think about it, I think.
0: So there's no analogy to be drawn between the, a classical, psychological, even Freudian picture of the conscious and the unconscious? How, has, how, do, how do you think about consciousness and everything that precedes it in light modern psychology? I mean, you know, it's psychology? clearly
2: related in the sense that what, what I call system one activities, the automatic ones, one characteristic they have is that you're completely unconscious of the process that produces them. You just get you know you get the results, you get four when you hear two plus two. Right. in system two activities you're often conscious of the process. you know what you're doing when you're calculating. you know what you're doing when you're searching for something in memory so clearly. Consciousness and system two tend to go together. It's not a perfect, uh, you know, and who knows what consciousness is anyway, but uh, they tend to go together. And system one is much more likely to be unconscious and automatic.
0: Neither system is a perfect guide toward tracking reality, but system one is its, it's very effective in many cases. Otherwise, we w- it wouldn't have evolved the way it has. But I guess maybe let's start with a picture of, where our intuitions are reliable and where they reliably fail. How do do you think about the utility of intuition?
2: I'll say first about System 1, that our representation of the world, most of what we know about the world, is in System 1. We're not aware of it. So that we're we're going along in life with producing expectations or, or, or... of being surprised or not being surprised by what happens, all of this is automatic. we're not aware of it. Mm. so uh, most of our thinking, system one thinking, most of what goes on in our mind goes on, and we're not aware of it so that's uh, and intuition is defined as you know knowing or rather thinking that you know something without knowing why why you know it or without knowing where it comes from and and it's fairly clear uh, actually. I mean, that's a digression. But uh, there is a guy named Gary Klein, a psychologist, who really doesn't like anything that I do. Mm. And he, he how does is... Your,
0: how does your system one feel about that?
2: I like Gary a lot, actually. So, uh, But he believes in intuition and in expert intuition, and he's a great believer in... And he has beautiful data showing, uh, beautiful observations of mm. expert intuition. So he and I, I invited him, actually, to try and figure out our differences, because obviously I'm a skeptic. So where intuition marvelous and where is it flawed? And we worked worked for six years before we came up with something, and we published an article called The Failure to Disagree, because, in fact, there is a fairly clear boundary about when you can trust your intuitions and when you can't. Mm. And... And I think that's summarized in three conditions. The first one is the world has to be regular enough. I mean, first of all, intuition is recognition. And that's Herbert Simon said that. You have an intuition, it's just like recognizing, you know, that it's like a child recognizing what a dog is. Uh, It's it's immediate. Now, in order to recognize patterns in reality, which is, which is what true intuitions are, the world has to be regular enough so that there are regularities to be picked up. Uh, Then you have to have enough exposure to those regularities to have a chance to learn them. And third, it turns out that intuition depends critically on the time between when you're making a guess and a judgment and when you get feedback about it. The feedback has to be rapid. And if those three conditions are satisfied, then eventually people develop intuition so that the chess players... Chess is a prime example where all three conditions are satisfied. So after, you know, many hours, I don't know, 10,000 or not, but many hours, a chess player will have intuitions. All the ideas, all the moves that come to his or her mind are going to be strong moves. That's intuition.
0: Right. So, so the picture is one of intuition, I mean, they're, they're intuitions that are more innate than others. Or ver- we're so primed to learn certain things innately that, that we, we, no one remembers learning these things, you know, recognizing a human face, say. But much of what you're calling intuition was at one point learned. So intuition is trainable. There are experts in various domains, chess being a, a very clear one, that develop what we consider to be expert intuitions. And yet much of the story of the blind spots in our rationality, is a story of the failure of expert intuition. So uh, to what well, where I do mean, you see the frontier of trainability
2: here? I mean, I think that what happens is that when those conditions are not satisfied, people have intuitions too. That is, you know, they have ideas that come to their mind with high confidence and they think they're right. And so the, the main I've thing... I've met these people. Yeah, I mean, you know... <laughs> Uh, we've, we've all met them, and we see them in the mirror, and, you know, that's, uh, so, uh, the, it turns out you can have intuitions for bad reasons, you know, so if all it takes is a thought that comes to your mind automatically and with high confidence, and you'll think that it's an intuition, and you'll trust it, and, but the correlation between confidence and accuracy is not high. That's, you know, one of the saddest things about the human condition. You can be very confident in, some, in ideas and the, the correlation. You shouldn't trust your confidence.
0: Well, so, but, but that, so that's just, you know, yes, a, a depressing but fascinating fact <laughs> that the signature of a high probability that you are correct is what you feel while uttering that sentence. I mean, so psychologically, confidence is the marker of, your credence in whatever proposition it is you're, you're entertaining, and yet we know they can become totally uncoupled and often are uncoupled. Given what you, what you know or think you know scientifically, how much of that bleeds back into your life and changes your, your, your epistemic attitude? Like, I yeah, do you hedge your bet? How, how is Danny Kahneman different given what he is, has understood about science? Not at all. Not at all. I mean, well, well I mean, it's, it's yeah. even more depressing than I thought.
2: <laughs> I mean, I, you know, in terms of think, you know, my intuition's better than being better than they were. No, and furthermore, I have to confess, I'm also very overconfident. So, uh, even that, I haven't learned. Right. So, so, it's, so what do you, what it's do you just, hard to get rid of uh, those things. You're
0: just issuing a, a long string of apologies? I mean, how do you get through life <laughs> this way? Because you, you should know better. If anyone should know better, you should know better.
2: Yeah, but I don't, I don't really feel guilty about it. So, <laughs> stopped, uh...
0: so, so, how hopeful are you that we can improve? How hopeful are you that an individual can improve? And how hopeful are you that we can design systems of conversation and incentives? that can make some future generation find us more or less unrecognizable in our stupidity and selfishness Well, I, you know, I,
2: I should preface by saying that I'm not an optimist in general, but I'm certainly not an optimist about those, those questions. Right. I, I don't think that... You know, I'm a case study because I've been studying that stuff for more than 50 years, and I don't think that my intuitions have have really significantly improved. I can catch sometimes, and that's that's important, I can catch, recognize a situation as one in which I'm likely to be making a mistake. And this is the way that people protect themselves against visual illusions. Right. You can see the illusions, and there's no way you can not see it. But you can recognize that this is likely to be an illusion. So don't trust my eyes. Take out the ruler. There is an equivalent. You know, there is a similar thing goes on with cognitive illusions. Sometimes you know that, that your intuitions, your, your confident uh, thought, is unlikely to be true. That's quite rare. It doesn't happen a lot. I don't think that I've become, you know, in any significant way, smarter because of studying uh, errors of cognition.
0: Right. Okay, let me just absorb that for a second. Okay. What you must thirst for uh, on some levels is that this understanding of ourselves can be made useful or more useful than, than, it, than it is, because the consequences are absolutely dire, right? I mean, our our decision-making is, one could argue, the most important thing uh, on Earth, certainly with respect to human well-being, right? I mean, how we negotiate nuclear test ban treaties, right? I mean, like everything from that on down, this is all human conversation, human intuition, errors of judgment, pretensions of knowledge, uh, and sometimes we get it right. And the delta there is extraordinarily consequential. So if I told you that we, over the course of the next 30 years, made astonishing progress on this front, right, so that we, our generation, looks like, you know, bumbling uh, medieval characters compared to what our children or grandchildren begin to see as a new norm, how did we get there?
2: You don't get there. You know, I mean, that's, uh, you know, it's the same as if you told me, will our perceptual system be very different in 60 years? And I don't think so.
0: so let's, t- let's take one of the, these biases or sources of bias that you have found. I mean, the, the power of framing, right? We know that if you frame a problem in terms of loss and, or you frame the same problem in terms of, of gains, you get a very different set of preferences from people because people are so averse to loss. So the knowledge of that fact, let's say you're a surgeon, right? And you're recommending or, or at least, you know, proffering uh, a surgery for a condition to your patients who you have a, you know, you have taken a Hippocratic oath to do no harm. And you know, because you read Danny Kahneman's book, that if you put the, the possibility of outcome in terms of mortality rates versus survival rates, you are going to be moving several dials in the, your patient's head one way or the other, reliably, can you conceive of us ever agreeing that there's a right answer there Like, in terms of what is, what is the ethical duty to frame this correctly? Is there a correct framing, or are we just going to keep rolling the dice?
2: Well, I mean, you're, this is a lot of questions at once. Uh, in the first place, you know, when you're talking about framing, the person with subject to the framing. I mean so you had a surgeon framing something for a patient. Mm. First of all the patient is going to be completely unaware of the fact that there is an alternative frame. That's why it works. It yeah. works because you see one thing and you accept the formulation as it is given. So that's uh, that's why framing works. Now whether there is a true or not true answer so I should let me mentioned the sort of the canonical problem, which actually my late colleague Amos Sversky invented. So in one formulation, you have a choice between, well, there is a disease that's going to cause 600 deaths unless something is done. And you have your choice between saving 400 people or a two-third probability of saving 600. Or alternatively, other people get the f- the other framing, that you have a choice between killing 200 people, killing 200 people for sure, and or not allowing them to die, and uh, a one-third probability that 600 people will die. Is there a correct answer? Is there a correct frame? Now, the interesting thing is people, depending on which frame you presented to them, they make very different choices. Yeah. But now you you confront them with the fact that here, here you've been inconsistent. And some people will deny it, but, uh, you know, you you can convince them this is really the same problem. You know, if if you save 400, then 200 will die. And then what happens is they're dumbfounded. That is, there are no intuitions. We have clear intuitions about what, having, about what to do with gains. We have clear intuitions about what what to do with losses, and when you strip it from that language with which we have intuition, we have no idea what to do. So, you know, what is better when you stop to think about, you know, stop thinking about saving or about, about dying?
0: Well, I've forgotten, if that research was ever done, I forgot what the results were. Has the third condition been compared to the first two? What do people do when you give them both framings and, for, and dumbfound them?
2: I mean, you know...
0: Where, where do the percentages go with respect we do, to...
2: This is not something that, you know, we've done formally, but I can tell you that I'm dumbfounded. That is, I have absolutely no idea. You know, I have, I have the same intuitions as everybody else. You know, when it's in the gains, I want to save lives. Right. And when it's in the losses, I don't want people to die. So, uh, But th- that's where the intuitions are. When you're talking to me about... 600 more people staying alive with a probability two-thirds. Or, so, you know, when you're talking about numbers of people living, I have absolutely no intuitions about that. So that is quite common in, in ethical problems and in moral problems, that they're frame-dependent. And when you strip the frames away, people are left without a moral intuition.
0: Well, and this is incredibly consequential in when you're thinking about human suffering. So your, your, your colleague, Paul Slovic has done these brilliant experiments where he's shown that if you ask people to support a charity, you talk about a a famine in Africa, say, and you show them one little girl attached to a very salient and heartbreaking narrative about how much she's suffering, you get the maximum charitable response. But then you go to another group and you show that same one little girl and tell her story, but you give her a brother and the response diminishes, and if you go to another group and you give them the the little girl and her brother, and then you say, in addition to the suffering of these two gorgeous kids, there are 500,000 suffering children behind them uh, suffering the same famine, then the altruistic response goes to the floor. It's, It's precisely the opposite of what we understand system two, should be normative, right? The, the, the bigger the problem, yeah. the more concerned and, and, and charitable we should be. So to take that case, there has to, there's a way to correct for this at the level of tax codes and levels of foreign aid and which problems to target. If We know that we are emotionally gamed by the salient personal story and more or less morally blind to statistics and you know, raw numbers. I mean, there's another piece of work that you did, which shows that people are so enumerate with respect to the magnitude of problems that they will they'll more or less pay the same amount, whether they're saving 2,000 lives, 20,000 lives, or 200,000 lives.
2: Yeah. Because basically, and that's a system one characteristic, right. basically you're saving one life. You're thinking, you have an image, you have stories, and this is what system one works on, and this is where emotions are about they're about stories. They're not about numbers. So it's always about stories. And what happens when you have 500,000, you have lost the story. A story, to be vivid, has to be about an individual case. And when you dilute it by adding cases, you dilute the emotion. Now, what you're describing in terms of moral, the moral response to this, is no longer an emotional response and this is already you know this is this is cognitive morality this is not emotional morality you've disconnected from the emotion you know that it's better to save 500,000 than than 5,000 even right. if you don't feel better about f- saving 500,000 so this is passing on to system 2 this is passing on to the cognitive system the responsibility for for action
0: and you don't think that that handoff can be made in a, in a durable way?
2: I think it has to be made by policymakers. And policymakers, you know, we, we hire some people to think about numbers and to think about about it in those ways. But if you want to convince people that this needs to be done, you need to convince them by telling them stories about individuals mm. because numbers just don't catch the imagination of people.
0: What does the phrase "cognitive ease" mean in your work?
2: Well, it means that some ideas come very easily to mind, and others come with greater and greater difficulty to the point of. So that's that's what cognitive. It's it's also called fluency.
0: Right. It's
2: you know what's what's easy to think about and. Uh, there is a correlation between fluency and pleasantness. Apparently, that pleasant things are more fluent; they come more easily. Not always more easily, but yes, they are more fluent. And and fluency is pleasant. So there is that interaction between fluency and pleasure, which I hope replicates.
0: So, uh, but so the picture I, I get is of. I don't know if you. I don't know if you reference this in your in your book. I can't remember, but. What happens? What we know from, you know, split-brain studies that for the most part the left linguistic hemisphere confabulates. It's continually manufacturing discursive stories that ring true to it. And there's in, in the case of actual neurological confabulation, there is no reality testing going on. There's nothing, It's just it's telling a story that is being believed. But it seems to me that most of us are in a similar mode most of the time. There's a very lazy reality testing mechanism coming online, and it's just easy to take your own word for it most of the time.
2: I think this is really, as, as you say, this is a normal state. The normal state is that we're telling ourselves stories. Hmm. We're telling ourselves stories to explain why we believe in things
0: more often than not, retrospectively in a way that has, bears no relationship to the system one uh, bottom-up uh, reasons why we feel this Absolutely. Have yeah. I mean,
2: but, you know, for me, the, the example that was formative in, is what happened with post-hypnotic suggestions. So you put somebody under hypnosis and, and you tell them, you know, when I clap my hands, uh, you will feel very warm and, and you'll open a window. And you clap your hands, and, and, uh, and they get up and open a window. And they know why they opened the window, and it has nothing to do with the suggestion. It comes with a the story. They felt really warm and uncomfortable, and they needed air, and, mm. and they opened the window. Actually, in this case, you know the cause. The cause was a hand was clapped.
0: Is that going to replicate?
2: That one replicates, okay. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. You know, I hope so. Yeah, uh, yeah I'm sure. Do you have a
0: favorite cognitive error or bias? Yeah. Which which of your ugly children do you like the most?
2: Uh, Yeah, I think, I mean, it's it's not the simplest to explain, but my my favorite one is sort of extreme predictions. Hmm. When you have very weak evidence, and on the basis of very weak evidence, you draw extreme conclusions. I call it, technically it's called non-regressive prediction, and it's my favorite.
0: Right, right. Where do you see it appearing? Is there an example of it that you
2: Oh, I mean, you see it all over the place, but when, you know, one very obvious uh, situation is in job interviews. So, you know, you, you interview someone and you have a very clear idea of how they will perform. And even when you are told that your ideas are worthless because, in fact, you cannot predict performance or can predict it only very poorly, it doesn't affect it. Next time you interview the person, you have the same confidence. Uh, Interview somebody else. I mean, that's something that I discovered very early in my career. I was was, uh, an an officer in the Israeli army as, as a draftee, and I was interviewing candidates for officer training and I discovered that I had that uncanny power to know who will be a good officer and who won't be. And I really could tell, you know, interviewing people. I knew their character. You get that sense of, you know, confident knowledge. And then, you know, then the statistics showed that actually we couldn't predict anything. And, and yet the confidence remained. It's a, right. it's a very right. strange... Right.
0: Well, so there must be a solution for that. So, I mean, will, yeah. so some people following your work must recommend that you either don't do interviews or, or heavily discount them, right? Yeah,
2: that's yeah. absolutely true. Don't do interviews, mostly. <laughs> right. And don't do interviews in particular because if you run an interview, you will trust it too much. So there, are, there have been many cases, you know, studies... I don't know about many, but there have been studies in which uh, you have candidates, you have a lot of information about them. And then if you add an interview, Hmm. it makes your predictions worse. Especially if the interviewer is the one who makes the final decision. Because when you interview, this is so much more vivid than all the other information you have that you put way too much weight on it.
0: Is that also a story about just the power of, of face-to-face interaction? And, and it's,
2: it's face-to-face interaction. It's immediate. You know, anything that you experience is, right. you know, if you're, is very different from being told about it. And you know, as scientists, one of the remarkable things that I know is how much more I trust my results than anybody else's. Right.
0: Right. So,
2: and, and that's true of everybody I know. You know, we trust our own results. Why? No reason.
0: All right. Then let's talk about regret. Okay. What, what is the, the power of regret in our lives? How do you, how do you think about regret?
2: Well, I think... Regret is, is an interesting emotion. And it's a, it's a special case of an emotion that has to do with counterfactual thinking. That is, regret is not about something that happened. It's, a, it's about something that could have happened but didn't. And, uh, and I don't know about regret itself, but anticipated regret. The anticipation of regret mm. plays an important role in lots of decisions. That is, there's a decision, and you tell yourself, well, if, if I don't do this then, you know, and, and it happens, then how will I feel? That expectation of regret is very powerful. And it's, it's well known in financial decisions and in a, a lot of other decisions.
0: And it's, it's connected to loss aversion as well, right? So well, I thing, mean, you will regret it more. It's yeah. a form of
2: loss. Yeah. The, and and it's quite vivid that you you are able to to anticipate how you will feel if something happens, and that becomes very salient.
0: Well, th- does the asymmetry with respect to how we view losses and gains make sense ultimately? I mean, it's, I think at some point in your work you talk about an an, an evolutionary rationale for it because suffering is worse than. Pleasure is good, essentially, because it just there's a survival advantage for those who are making greater efforts to avoid suffering. But it also just seems like there's if you if you put in the balance of possibility the worst possible misery and the greatest possible pleasure. I mean, if I told you we could have the night we're going to have tonight and it will be a normal night of conversation, or there's a part of the evening where I can give you the worst possible misery for a half hour, followed by the best possible pleasure. Uh, let's have
2: a conversation. Yeah let's, just,
0: yeah, let's just get a yeah, cheeseburger yeah. and, and a Diet Coke. The, the, the prospect of suffering in this universe seems to overwhelm the prospect of, of happiness or well-being. I, I know you, you put a lot of thought into the power of sequencing. I, th- I, I can imagine that Feeling the misery first and the pleasure second would be better than the reverse. Much, but but it's it's not going to be enough to to make it s- seem like a good choice. I would imagine. How do you how do you think of this asymmetry between well, I mean, and pain? Well, I mean,
2: you know, it's the basic asymmetry is between threats and opportunities, and and threats are more immediate, and they're and so in many situations it's not true. It, Everywhere, uh, there are situations where opportunities are very rare, but threats are immediate and they have to be dealt with immediately. So, the priority of threats over opportunities must be built in, by and large, evolutionarily.
0: But do you think we could extract an ethical norm from this asymmetry? For instance, could it be true to say that it is more important to alleviate suffering? than to provide pleasure if we, could, if we had some way to calibrate the, the, the magnitude of each? Well,
2: in the first, uh, we did a study, uh, Dick Thaler and Jack Natch and I did a study a long time ago about intuitions about fairness. Mm-hmm. And it's absolutely clear that that asymmetry rules intuitions about fairness. That is, there is a very powerful rule of fairness that people identify with not to cause losses. That is, you have to have a very good reason to inflict a loss on someone. The injunction to share your gains is much weaker. So that asymmetry, what we call the rights that people have, quite frequently the negative rights that people have, uh, is the right not to have losses inflicted on you. So there are powerful moral intuitions that, that go in that direction. And the second question that you asked, because that was a compound question uh, about well-being, yeah, I mean, I I think, you know, in, in recent decades, there's a tremendous emphasis on happiness and the search for happiness and the responsibility of governments to, to make citizens happy and so on. And And one of my doubts about this line of work and this line of thinking, is that I think that preventing misery is a much better and more important objective
0: mm. than
2: promoting happiness. And so uh, the, the happiness movement, I have my doubts about be- on those grounds.
0: Given what you've said, it's hard to ever be sure that you've found solid ground here. So there's the intuition that you just cited that people have a very strong reaction to imposed losses that they don't have to unshared gains, right? You do something that uh, robs me of something I thought I had, I'm going to feel much worse about that than just the knowledge that you didn't share some abundance that I never had in the first place. But it seems that we could just be a conversation away from standing somewhere that makes that asymmetry look ridiculous, analogous to the the Asian disease problem, right? Like it's a framing effect that we are—we may have an evolutionary story to tell about why we're here, but given some opportunity to be happy in this world, it could seem counterproductive. I mean, I, 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 say, I say this already being anchored to your intuition. I, I share yes. this, this situation. Yeah,
2: I think that you know, in in philosophical debates about morality and well-being. Uh, there are really two ways of thinking about it. And there is one way about when you're thinking of final states and of what everybody will have. And so you have... And there is a powerful intuition that you want people more or less to be equal, or at least not to be too different. But there is another way of thinking about it, which is, given the situation and the state of society, how much redistribution... Do you want to impose and there there is an asymmetry because you are taking from some people and giving it to others and you don't get to the same point so we have powerful moral intuitions of two kinds and they're not internally consistent and loss aversion has a great deal to do with that
0: so given that there are many things we want and don't want and we want and don't want them strongly and we are all moving individually and collectively into an uncertain future where there are threats and opportunities, and we're trying to find our way. How do you think about worrying? What is the advantage of worrying? If there was a way to just not worry, is that an optimal strategy? I think the Dalai Lama most recently articulated this in a meme, but this no doubt predates him. Take the thing you're worried about, right? Either there's something you can do about it or not. If there's something you can do about it, well, then do that thing. If you can't do anything about it, well, then why worry? Because you're just going to suffer twice, right? How do you you think about worry, given your work here?
2: Well, I don't think my work leads to any particular uh, conclusions about this. I mean, the Dalai Lama is obviously right. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, why worry? (laughs) Uh, But Some people are going to tweet that uh, and it's uh, not going to work out well for you. on the other hand on the on the other hand uh, i would like to see people worry a fair amount about the future and even because you don't know right now whether or not you'll be able to do anything about it right i mean maybe, a,
0: maybe worry the, the only way to get to get enough activation energy into the system to actually motivate them to, to do something is yeah, to is to
2: worry you know one of the problems for example when you're thinking of climate change one of the problems, you, you can't make people worry about something that is so abstract and distant. Yeah. And, you know, if, if you make people worry enough, things would change. But uh, there is, scientists are incapable of making the public worry sufficiently about that problem.
0: To steal a technique that you just recommended, it, if you could m- make a personal story out of it, that would sell the problem much more effectively. It just Climate change is a very difficult thing to personalized. It's very way.
2: difficult to personalize and it's not immediate. So yeah. it's it really climate change is the worst problem in, in a yeah. way. The problem that we're least well equipped to deal with because it's remote, it's abstract and and it's not a clear and present danger. I mean, a meteorite, you know, coming to Earth, that would mobilize people. Climate change is a much more difficult problem to deal with. And worry is is part of that story. It's
0: interesting that that a a meteorite would be different. I mean, even if you put it far enough out there, so you have an Earth-crossing asteroid in 75 years, there would still be some council of uncertainty. People would say, well, we can't be 100% sure that something isn't going to happen in the next 75 years that will divert this asteroid. Other people will say, well, surely we're going to come up with some technology that would be onerously costly for us to invent now, but 20 years from now could be trivially easy for us to invent. So why steal anything from anyone's pocketbook now to deal with it? Uh, you could run I mean, some of the same arguments, but there's something, the problem is crystallized in a I mean, way. The, that the difference changes. is
2: there is a story about the asteroid. You have, right. you have a clear image of what happens if it hits. Yeah. And, and the image Cli- is, a lot, change, is a lot clearer than climate change.
0: <laughs> so one generic issue here is the power of framing. I mean, we are, we are now increasingly becoming students of the power of framing But we are not, we should just be able to come up with a list of the problems we have every reason to believe are real and significant and sort those problems by the variable of this is the set of problems that we are, we know that we are very unlikely to feel an emotional response to, right? We are just, we are not wired to appreciate, to be motivated by what what, we rationally understand in the in these areas, and then take the cognitive step of deliberately focusing on those problems. If we did that, if the, you know, if everyone in this room did that, what we're then left with is a political problem of selling this attitude toward the rest of. I mean, you know, the, you the
2: use the you use the tricky word there, and the word is "we." Who is "we"? I mean, you know, in in that story, uh, who is "we"? The so you are talking about a group of people, possibly political leaders, who are making a decision on behalf of the population that that in a sense they treat like children who do not understand the problem. Uh, I mean, it's, it's quite difficult. Sure, to, surely you can't democracy. be talking about our
0: current political leaders. Uh,
2: no, I'm not. Uh, but it's it's actually... I find it difficult to see how democracies can effectively deal with a problem like climate change. I mean, you know, if I had to to guess, I would say China is is more likely to come up with effective solutions than the West because they're authoritarian.
0: Okay, so is that an argument for a benevolent dictatorship of some kind to get to get us out of this mess?
2: If you ask if it's an argument, yes, it's an yeah. argument. Whether yeah. it's a winning argument, I, I, you know, I, I wouldn't want to commit myself to that, but th- that it's an argument. It sounded I good when, when I, I said it. Question. It felt
0: good. It felt true when I said it. It's hard to escape the feeling that we, that we are just continually having to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps here. Our, our perception of truth and validity and consistency, we, again, we've got system one humming along, delivering into consciousness, it's calculations, and then we're, we're trading in the linguistic representations of that, and I say something to you, and it sounds like bullshit, and you, re, you have a system one response, and we're negotiating. It seems to me that we, we have conquered ground here. We really want to be able to plant a flag somewhere so that we don't lose sight of it again, so that where we know that we know our intuitions are going to be wrong reliably if so, and yet we we have understood these errors clearly enough that we won't lose that ground again. We can enshrine our better judgment that that each of us is incapable of, often in the moment, someplace else where we can always see it and use use that as as an anchor point.
2: Well, I mean, you know, again, the the issue is who is going to do it? I mean, who is we? I think that We're in danger in this conversation of overestimating the the power of system one. I mean, there is system two. People do uh, think reasonably. They take long-term decisions. They are not slaves of their passions. And and so people are quite capable of long-term thinking and of investing in the future and of doing, of sacrificing things in the present. Those capabilities exist. And I think that's, one suggestion that was implicit in what you said you said we should make a list and there i think i agree there should be a list i mean in the sense that this is a question we should be asking ourselves when we think about a problem a societal problem is how can it be framed and and is and Somebody had the responsibility in those cases of choosing a framing because it's it's going to be framed one way or the other and and so given that idea that you know there is no avoiding framing that that you can choose the better frame that's that's the central idea of you know behavior economics and nudging yeah. uh, is really that 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 you can you should choose the frame that that leads to the better decision and to the better outcome
0: right and and aligning incentives is part of yeah. that yeah you want to you want to create systems whereby even mediocre which is to say normal people can can behave better and better effortlessly right and you don't want systems where you have to be a saint to do something absolutely,
2: probably. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the basic psychological rule, I mean, if you want people to behave in a particular way, is to make it easy for them. Yeah. I mean, I, and that, by the way, is very different from incentives. You mentioned earlier, you mentioned incentives. Yeah, so, we'll
0: how to tease those apart?
2: Well, the social psychologist, Kurt Lewin, had, you know, in, around the end of World War II, he developed those ideas of how you change behavior and he distinguished two ways of, two essential ways of changing behavior. That is, you can apply pressure in the direction where you want people to go, or you can ask a very different question, which is, why aren't they going there by themselves? That is, what is preventing them from doing what what you think they should do? And then remove obstacles, make it easier for people to do. I think that's to my mind, you know, it's perhaps the best psychological idea I know. It's this distinction between applying pressure and making things easier, removing, removing obstacles. And pressure, and that's important. Pressure is incentives. Pressure is threats. And pressure is arguments. Mm. I mean, all three of those are pressure.
0: Are you also adding to the picture of pressure things that they desire, so carrots and sticks, or you're just talking about sticks?
2: I mean, no, I mean, so incentives, and, and positive, so pos- positive incentives, incentives, you, positive uh, incentives it, yeah. and threats, I would lump, and the the idea that I draw from quote Lewin is I would lump arguments, threats, and, and uh, promises together, right. and pit them against... Thinking about what you could do to make it easier for people to move in the direction you want them to move. Do, do
0: you have a, a real-world example of, of this? Is opting in versus opting out that different I mean, part of it? I mean,
2: that's an example.
0: So, like org, organ donation. If you go to the DMV, you could either currently you have to you have to opt in to being an organ donor, but if you have to opt out. As, yeah. as this has I happens, mean, that's so a think very banned, good example.
2: Yeah. Whatever is easier. When you make it easy to do the right thing, people are much more likely to do it, and they'll do it effortlessly and without conflict. I mean, the interesting thing about increasing pressure, which is threats, promises, and arguments, is that you create conflict. You do not... Whereas by removing obstacles, you remove the conflict. You make things easier. You reduce stress at the same time as achieving behavior change. So this, this idea, for some reason, it, by the way, it's very non-intuitive. The intuitive response that people have when they want people to move somewhere is to look, is to look in the arsenal of, of what pressure can I apply arguments, threats, promises. Yeah, you've just Instead described
0: my entire career as a writer and podcaster. <laughs> Okay, well, let's talk. There's, there's another distinction you make that is incredibly interesting and useful and, and troubling for those of us who want to be happy in this life. And it's the distinction between the remembering self and the, the experiencing self. Perhaps you can make that distinction for us. And let's talk about uh, how you think about human well-being and the prospects of gaining it or increasing it in light of these two selves.
2: Well, I'll start with some some experiments that we ran, because that's the, the easiest way of explaining it. So we have, we have two conditions. In one condition, people are going to put their hand in cold water at 14 degrees Celsius, which is it's, it's unpleasant, but tolerable. Uh, and they're going to keep it there for 60 seconds. So that's one condition. The other condition is the same. 60 seconds, except that instead of telling you, take your hand out and giving people a warm towel, you keep their hand in there, you don't tell them anything. And you raise the temperature from 14 degrees Celsius to 15 degrees Celsius, which is still unpleasant, but less unpleasant. You give people both of these experiences, one one to the right hand, one to the left hand, and then you ask them, which would you rather have again? if you're going to have to have one of these two unpleasant experiences again. And people choose the longer one. Now, if you think in terms of the overall amount of pain, it's absolutely clear that the longer one includes all the pain of the shorter one and then some. And yet, people prefer it. Now, why? Um, what, what's happening here? In one way, when we think about pain, we're basically thinking about pain as something that happens in a moment, and we integrate over a moment, over 60 seconds or over 90 seconds, and then it's clear that there is more pain in the 90-second one. The other way of looking at it is how you remember the episode. And when you remember the two episodes, it turns out that the 90-second one is remembered better because it ended better. And so memory follows different rules from experience. and So we ran a bunch of experiments of that kind, demonstrating that, and you can really show that very sharply, that people do not remember, do not order experiences in their memory in the same way that they should be ordered by what they actually went through. Now, it turns out you can extrapolate this to well-being because you could look at well-being in two different ways, and people have been doing those experiments now. You can get a measure of well-being over time, say, by sampling. You know, it's now frequently done with phones that you beat people a few times a day and you ask them a question. That's experience sampling. And then you can integrate and, and get an average measure of happiness, say. Alternatively, and that's the common thing, you get people in a survey and you ask them, how happy are you? Or how how satisfied are you with your life? Now, that question is a retrospective question. It's a a remembering question. So I I try to formulate that in terms of two selves. There is a self that's living your life and it's having all those experiences in real time. And that's the experiencing self. And then there is the remembering self, and the remembering self is the one that you know, comes to life when you ask what do you think about your life, how happy are you, how good with your vacation, all those retrospective questions. Now, the interesting thing in terms of the human condition is that the one that's doing the living is the experiencing self, but the one that's making the decisions actually is the remembering self, because when we, memories are all we get to keep, and when we are faced with a question about what to do, we'll we'll probe our memories and find out, you know, which experience left the better memory, and that's what we'll choose. So that leads to two conceptions of well-being, and one, you know, based on experience which you could say the reality of experience and the other is that construction that people have that story that people construct about their life and that they evaluate when you ask them a question now for for a long time a long time for several years i i was convinced that this question had the right answer and that the right answer is that the experiencing self is reality the remembering self is you know, just a construction, and that really, if you want to make people happy, you should you should improve their experiences. And eventually, I gave up on that. That's one of the occasions where I was just forced to give up on, on an idea that I have cherished. And I gave up because this is clearly not what people want to do. People actually want good memories. They want to be satisfied with their life. They're not thinking of the future in terms of experiences. They're thinking of the future in terms of anticipated memories. And, and you can't have a theory of well-being that doesn't correspond to what people want. I mean, you know, um, you can be authoritarian, but there is a limit.
0: Okay, well, the the authoritarian in me is now rising up and defending your former self against your current uh, self. Uh, so yeah, so I, I feel very strongly, and this is, sounds true in my head now, and it's going to sound true when I say it, <laughs> that the remembering self really is just the experiencing self in one of its modes, right? So we're, we're having our experience, and if you ask me five minutes from now, well, how was that last hour? I will say something based on a, this retrospective episodic memory effort, but... If you were sampling my experience through that part of the conversation, that's just more of the conversation. That's, and it's, it's getting categorized as, in this case, a different self. I don't doubt the fact that it has the effect you say it does, which is when asked to decide something, I will have reference to my memories because that's, in fact, that's all I, you do, have. I That's what I have. But I do feel like there's a place to stand outside of a person's a psychological timeline where you could say they are right or wrong about what it was like to be them. So for, to, to take the case of two vacations, right? I, I give you one vacation where we are, your experience is being sampled by an omniscient AI, and at every point along the way, you are, you're having a fantastic time. But toward the end, there's some glitch that causes you to view the previous week in some disparaging terms, and you think, I'm never going to go to Hawaii again you know, if they're going to treat me like that on checkout at the hotel, and that's what you have longed in your memory, whereas you could have some alternate vacation that is fairly unendurable all the way through, but some bright spot shines on you at the, in the last moment, and you remember, that was actually kind of good. I mean, it was awful, but that was, that was good. I'd, I'd go back there, Right. And essentially, you're somebody with brain damage who just doesn't remember his life very clearly.
2: But, you know, we're all brain damaged. You yeah, know, exactly. You know, <laughs> in That's that particular way. I meant I, the collective view, not you. I actually had the experience that you described. You know, I gave a talk on, on that topic, and somebody got up in the question, in the Q&A, and, and told a story to the audience. And the story was... The other week, I was listening to a glorious symphony. You know, that was certainly a period when there people who listened to records still. And he said, and just as as it was going to end, there was that horrible screech, and it ruined the whole experience. And that's a direct quote. Right. And you know, I said it didn't ruin the experience. I mean, you'd had the experience. You know, you you'd had 20 minutes of glorious music. It ruined the memory of the experience. People cannot draw that distinction. For him, it ruined the experience, because the memory is what he got to keep. Now, how much, you know, I, I could say the following in terms of if I had to choose for my children or grandchildren, you know, what I wish for them. On the one hand, certainly when they're small, I want them to be happy. And to have good experience, happiness. When you think of them as adults, is it absolutely clear that you want them to be happy, or, or do you really want them to be satisfied with their life? And it's not so clear. It's well, not obvious. I think that's that's
0: a, that's another point, right? So that's not incompatible with what I'm saying. I, I think I want you to have, I want you to be as happy as you can be but in such a way that your life will, will feel as meaningful as it can feel when I have to talk to you about it. Whenever I ping you and say, Danny, how's it going over there? Are you satisfied with your life? I want your answer to track a very happy life, but it, it's, it's totally possible that there are, in order to get the, the best memories for you, the, 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 so, the, so that when, when it, whenever you have to evaluate your life, to get the best story, that you will always be most satisfied with, there, there needs to be some epochs in this experiencing timeline of frustration and frustrations overcome and embarrassments and embarrassments corrected for, and so there's, there's, it's not all just pure pleasure. I'm not saying you're, you're shooting heroin on the couch for 75 years and then I get a chance to ask you about it and you have a great story to tell.
2: Well, you know, if we could have both then, you know, a happy life and good memories, that would be wonderful. But, but actually, it turns out in research on well-being that that it's not the same thing. The conditions yeah. that make you happy in your life and the conditions that make you satisfied with your life, or the they, break apart. Uh, they are different. And, and it's at least, you know, in the research that we did, there was a fairly clear picture. What determines how happy you are is largely social. It's spending a lot of time with people you love. I mean, you know, that's that. It's friends actually more than children. But uh, it's spending time with his with next people. book is
0: on parenting. Apparently, yeah.
2: That's, uh, <laughs> uh, but the conditions that lead people to be satisfied with their life are much more conventional. They're about success. So, for example, money doesn't make you happy in the emotional sense, although poverty makes you unhappy. But money really doesn't buy you much happiness. But money buys you life satisfaction. The more you have and the more you earn, the more people are satisfied. So yeah. the, what makes people satisfied is conventional success.
0: So let's, let's linger on that point, because this is a the takeaway message from that paper you wrote. I forget when that was, but the, the, the takeaway has been that... Poverty makes you miserable. And, but, so up until $75,000, I, I think it is, yeah. you see steady gains. But after $75,000, there are no gains in happiness. But what people didn't even seem to read past the abstract is that these two things break apart. The, the sort of unhappy, cynical punchline is the sense of meaning, the sense of that your life is going well, keeps going up in a linear fashion until you get to Jeff Bezos. Yeah. yeah
2: yeah yeah i mean that's that's the essential result is right. that and it just illustrates the tension between you know seeking happiness and and seeking satisfaction. There are many trade offs in life that that this touches on, like a long commute, which quite often you know there are economic reasons for a long commute, mm. but a long commute is time. That you spend alone—it's not time that you spend with people you you love. That's that's a very important trade-off in terms of happiness.
0: Danny, it's a time you spend listening to podcasts that you love.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I mean, that's yeah. this <laughs> is. Yes, let's get our priorities straight. So, oh, so I, I want to. I want to extract one piece of wisdom from this because so you, the, the experiment you described, which was the i don't think you named it but it, it, but it, it, it revealed what you call the peak end rules. So what you remember yeah. is the peak of the the peak stimulus during any experience, and you remember how it ended, right so if the peak was very bad and the end was bad, well then no, no matter how good it seemed, uh, it was awful, and you can flip that around so If you have a grandchild that needs a medical procedure and there's a choice between doing the unpleasant procedure for the requisite 18 minutes and it's over, or doing the unpleasant procedure and then lingering for the extra four minutes that you know based on solid data that has now been replicated, that those extra four minutes of needless suffering at a lower level will lead to a better memory. What does the compassionate grandfather do?
2: Well, you know, it depends very much on whether that experience, you know, so we ran that experiment, and, and it was run on a colonoscopy, which at the time, like 20, 20 years ago, was an unpleasant experience. Yeah. Now there's no experience because yes. they put
0: you to give, sleep. Give me the proper But.
2: Uh, but at the time, it was an unpleasant experience, and the, the issue was compliance with the need to have another one. And, right. and there, the memory is really important, so that if you're going to remember it as a very bad experience, you won't want to have it again, even if you need it. So there was a really medical reason yeah. to, to go with the memory and not with the experience. And it's quite possible, and this I don't know. I don't know about... About trauma and trauma and memory, and whether you can alleviate trauma by adding a better ending to an experience, or an improving ending. Well, you would suspect that you could. Right? I suspect you could, but I have no. I, I don't know mm. data.
0: Mm. Well, Danny, there's, I know there's a lot that people want to ask you, and uh, so I want to turn this into a, a proper conversation now. And I, there, there, there will be microphones emerging somewhere in the aisles or on the, on the wings, and um, when those are hot, we will shift directly into Q&A.
3: Shabbat shalom. Yeah.
0: Are we on? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.
4: Thank you so much. Um, I just have one question and I hope I don't sound stupid uh, voicing that question. And it is just that uh, I see how um, Danny's work has mapped human behavior and the shortcomings of, however you want to phrase it, shortcomings of human behavior onto uh, the science of economics in some sense. Do you think that it is necessary to do that for other major disciplines like political science and whatnot as well? Because we sort of assume this classical rationalist thought when it comes to exploring political thought and whatnot. Do we need to map out the, the landscape of the human behavior
2: onto that as well? Well, uh, you know, I would see absolutely no reason why behavior should be different when you look at it at the individual level or when you look at political behavior. Many examples you know, that came up in this conversation were examples at the level of society. And and if, so this is, you know, this is something that we talked about. I certainly don't see any reason to segregate psychology from the rest of social sciences.
3: Thank you for uh, a great talk. Uh, We're all familiar with uh, road rage or these days it's uh, Twitter rage, Mm. which is uh, basically looks similar. So it seems to me, or it's my intuition, that uh, social media and you know Twitter and all those are in some ways hacking bypassing system one uh, and pushing buttons and maybe all the red lights are flickering uh, that's why people have those visceral responses and the interactions are are going uh, off the rails uh, online uh, would you analyze it in a similar way and if so what are the mechanisms and uh, the biases that are most affected by that. And one just one note is that it seems to me like what you said uh, about um, uh, job interviews uh, contradicts that. Uh, contradicts the fact, you said that uh, the personal interaction actually makes things worse. Uh, if you're mm. talking about the data for a, a possible employee. And it seems like social media should have data you have arguments right and there's no this uh personal interaction so it kind of uh doesn't really align the uh-huh. the assumption assumption that i had and and what you said
0: did you get the gist of that uh, you're, you're, no. you're you're not on social uh, you're not hmm? on social media in no, any way right i'm not uh, so so actually i, I want to modify that question a little bit but i i, <laughs> I enjoyed it the um, we're experiencing a just a a vast derangement of our ability to make sense together by social media. And the onus is often placed on the lack of face-to-face interaction. We will say and think things to and about other people in this condition of anonymity that we won't face-to-face. Uh, so the analogy to road rage. But he's, he's drawing a, li- a, a connection to what you just said about the unreliability of face-to-face interviews. And it seems like social media could be this pristine place of, of happy conversations and rational attitudes formed about the beliefs of others without the contamination of face-to-face well, I mean, bias.
2: You know, the, the object, the, the goal is very different. In, in the, one is a situation of communication. In the interview, uh, you are trying to form an impression, you are trying to make a prediction about an individual. So right. the two situations are really very different and it turns out that the immediacy of the of the interaction is causes well is overweighted and causes wrong predictions I don't see a parallel to what happens in in social media it it seems that what may be happening is the fact that messages are very brief and you know, you can send them. It's just like you press send sometimes on, on an email. I know some people, uh, um, rational people, who have a one minute delay when they press send. And, and that one minute delay allows them a chance, you know, to, to say, what am I doing? And in, in social media, I think a one minute delay might be quite helpful in many situations. Yeah, a
0: good idea. So, so the thing I wanted to add to that question, because uh, I, I realize it's a topic that I, I've, I neglected to ask you about, but you have some interesting thoughts about gossip. And so you actually, you're, though you are not an optimist, you have some of the most optimistic thoughts about the, the utility of gossip. So what's the, well, what's your take on gossip? I,
2: I presented the book I wrote on thinking fast and slow. I presented it optimistically as, as an attempt to educate gossip. And that is, I said, you know, it's pretty hopeless for people to decide to be smarter. But it's fairly, it's easier, I hope, to teach people how to criticize other people. I mean, that's just easier and more pleasant than, than modifying yourself. And I, I think that if you improve the quality of gossip, the quality of behavior would improve. Because gossip is something that we anticipate and that and negative gossip is something we try to avoid. And if we anticipated intelligent gossip, we would, I think, behave possibly. You know, I'm an optimist for a change here. Yeah. We might behave more, more intelligently.
0: Well, this is perfectly designed for social media, this thesis. If we could make the gossip about
2: oneself uh, You would oneself have to educate it. You would yeah. have to. Ed- the point is, you know, what is the quality of criticism on social media? Right. And, right. and if you could improve the quality... You would change you know then many of the objections would vanish it's just that when the quality is poor that you have you know possibly disastrous consequences certainly not very good consequences yeah over here
5: Uh, sorry daniel
4: i I realized you're the man of the hour but i'd like to ask a question more directly towards sam if we if we accept your thesis in the moral landscape that that science can answer questions of human morality would it also be possible if science could answer questions gauging artistic pursuits. So could we determine with any degree of certainty whether or not Picasso was a great painter or, or Leo Toysler was a great novelist and so on and so forth?
0: Thanks. Yeah, well, I, I think that our intuitions about what is aesthetically beautiful converge. Otherwise, we would just, what we would experience is just no agreement at all about what's beautiful or what makes sense or what's inspiring or we're similar enough That we are obviously there's a diversity of opinion and there there are fads which don't stand the test of time. But when you think of the things about which there is massive convergence, you know that if you take, I mean, whether you whether you even like to read Shakespeare, there's some claims that can be made about what he what he wrote that virtually everyone will agree on. Right? So he he was a master of metaphor half the, the metaphors and cliches we, we have bouncing around our brains came from Shakespeare, right? And that's not an accident. So there's a, there's a structure there that presumably a, a far more mature science of the mind could understand. And, yeah, I think it's analogous to finding something logical, perhaps, in the end. And now, again, uh, you know, my, as you know, my, my view of the moral landscape is that it's possible to have incompatible peaks well, we're talking about the human peak here for minds like ours, but there could be a peak over here where minds are constituted very differently, where intuitions of beauty are quite different. But still, there'll be a difference on each of these peaks when you compare to any place you could you could occupy in a lower spot. So, uh, I, ho- I hope that answered it.
1: Hi. Well, thank you so much for allowing us to bounce our thoughts of, of your great minds in real time. It's really quite amazing. Uh, and coming. also, thank you for the, the Waking Up course. It's been very valuable, I know, to a lot of people. Oh, cool. Thank you. Thank you. So my question is for both or either of you um, regarding intuitions. You talked about how uh, they can the, the accuracy and our confidence and our intuitions can be really uncoupled. And uh, in the context of the resurgence of psychedelic therapies and their medical potential, uh, there's uh, noetic properties that we call under the psychedelic state. And I was wondering if you guys think that it's the same mechanism at work, but just cranked up to 11, uh, or that uh, the, the, the medical benefits that might come from these quote unquote revealed truths under the psychedelic state, might have some, like, they have some real value med- medically, but uh, are they therefore a bit more, quote-unquote, accurate, uh, mm. even though it might be the same intuition at work that might be uh, uncoupled also?
0: Have you ever taken acid, Danny? <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or are you just uh,
1: familiar with the notion of uh, the noetic uh, property?
0: Yeah, yeah no, I'll, I'll, I'll get there. But have you, have you ever done any psychedelics? Is that... You just—we're just among friends here. You can. You
2: know. <laughs> uh, no, I haven't, and I regret it. Actually, I mean it's. Uh, so.
0: Interesting. well, there's—the the night is young, Daddy.
2: <laughs> Thank you for the offer.
0: Have your experiencing self call my remembering self, and we'll. we'll hook up. <laughs> uh, so. I mean, the issue—the issue here strikes me as as genuinely difficult, and I, I think we can resolve it in certain cases clearly. But I mean, there there, there will be edge cases where we can't, and it's it's precisely the, the 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 issue that came up early in the conversation, which is that feelings of certainty and feelings of meaning can be uncoupled from every rational part of the machine that should be delivering those feelings of certainty and and meaning. And so you, can be, so you can have pathological certainty and pathological senses of, of, of the meaningfulness of things. Now, that's absolutely clear with respect to, to certainty. You, know, I mean, you can make epistemic claims about the way the world is that bear no relationship to the way the world is, and you're making those claims just because you've got the confabulator running, and it sounds good, right? It sounds true. The feeling of meaning, however... When that becomes uncoupled from anything, any rational story you can tell about meaning, it's a different phenomenon and a different problem. Because I say, yes, you can take a psychedelic like LSD, say, or you can meditate in silence for months or years and have discover that the feeling of profundity, the feeling of meaning, the feeling of sublimity, the feeling of beauty... You can have the biotic vision, pointing your gaze at anything. Ultimately, it's a quality of attention. It's not dependent on what you're looking at, and it seems warranted when you, you know, when someone takes you to a, to uh, the biggest telescope and points it at Andromeda, and you understand something about how many stars are there and how many planets might be there, and it's 2.2 million light years away, whatever it is, and you get a sense of the vastness of the cosmos. Well, then that is a intellectually sanctioned feeling of awe, which we think, okay, well, that is nothing irrational about being overcome by just the the magnitude of that sight. But on acid, if you're just staring at your shoelaces (laughs) and having the same experience, that seems pathological. And uh, granted, it is pathological if you have to get things done in the world. I mean, certainly if you're going to write a grant proposal and and get Danny to, to be your PI on it. It can't be the shoelaces. It's got to be something warranted. But the truth is the, the experience of the experiencing self can be made better and better and deeper and deeper by any discipline of attention that manages to find the intrinsic awe and suchness that is available in any moment of consciousness. There is something you know, seemingly intellectually seditious about the the, the, the project of experimenting with things like meditation and psychedelics. And actually, ironically, I, I was, as I reminded Danny, I don't think he had any reason to remember. We first met at a a summer research intensive that was uh, organized for the purposes of studying meditation scientifically. It was a research intensive that when I was in, in graduate school, I helped... Uh, organized with uh, Richie Davidson, who uh, has done the best neuroimaging work on meditation. And Danny, I don't even remember why you were invited. It wasn't based on your prior interest in meditation, I don't think.
2: I was hoping to learn meditation, actually.
0: Because there, there is a version of meditation that can begin to look like just heroin without the needle, you know, where your, your states of well-being become uncoupled for any good reason why you should feel that good. And you don't want to feel that way while your kids are wandering in traffic, right? So you have to, you want your sense of how good your life is to actually be coupled to the way your life really is. And, and we could find ourselves in situations that will change, will, that will push our intuitions around a lot on this front, because if anything like being uploaded into the matrix or spending our time in virtual reality more and more without you know apparent cost, and that can become more and more pleasurable, then, you know, we're either in some kind of Alvis Huxley-like dystopia, where we've just pushed ourselves into some pleasant oblivion, or we are actually navigating the states of possible minds intelligently and without real cost. It matters that we get that right, and there's certainly a way to get it wrong, but it's somewhat paradoxical.
2: Sam, I mean, what do you have against shoelaces Yes, right, exactly. well, <laughs> I'm sort of serious. Yeah. Uh, I mean, where, where does the warrant come from? Well,
0: it's a great question. It's, it's not
2: anything
0: rewards sufficient attention. I mean, and Including shoelaces. Yeah, including shoelaces, yes. But you have it, arguably a less glamorous story to tell if you just spent the day looking at your shoelaces... And all you can say is, it was one of the best days of your life. (laughs) So what people want, I I think we're right to want something, on some level it comes back to having friends. I mean, if you're living in a moral solitude, you're you're the, the last conscious being alive, well then point your attention any place that feels good, right? But we have to collaborate profitably together, I have to be able to say something that makes sense to you, right? And, and vice versa. And uh, we have to decide what to do tomorrow. And the common projects we form are based to a large degree on our forming a common understanding of what's going on in the world. And just being blissed out by an arbitrary use of attention doesn't have a lot of cash value in that space. But what it does have, or what versions of that can seem like that have, is... An ability to regulate your negative emotions or, and become wise to the ways in which your, your negative and positive emotions distort your cognition such that you can actually you, you can be a, a more intelligent steward of your certainties and your your convictions and your and your priorities. And so I mean meditation is extraordinarily useful. I'm I'm a fan, but I am just acknowledging that there are seeming deviation points intellectually and ethically where you can it can become kind of masturbatory essentially like you found a way to just imagine yourself into a state of happiness that certainly doesn't do the world a lot of good and it doesn't make you capable of much apart from being imperturbable and that's i mean that would be the the criticism of it from the outside
2: you know yeah that's multiple objectives i mean that's not yeah
0: all
5: right there lads um i was wondering so yeah, well. Thank you, first of all, for creating a renaissance of just intellectualism within the insane sphere of social media. Um, I want to ask a question like to both of you. Um, in the beginning, you questioned the rigor of academia within the political sphere. Um, so I want to create a bit of a round of sparring. Daniel, you said that authoritarianism could solve some problems. Sam, would you agree that authoritarianism could, in some sense, because our political leaders actually use data from academia, do you think that political leaders just need to get to the point and make decisions? And, or do you think that academic reg- rigor actually can solve some of the problems?
0: Well, I, I feel like we might have covered that. Do you have more to add to your, with respect to your attitude toward the application of science to politics or the the, no. the lure of authoritarianism?
2: I mean, like, no. Let's I mean, like, I think the question is addressed to you: yeah. whether you you agree with uh, you know the possible defense of authoritarianism that I sort of.
0: Well, well, I, I'm not sure what I think here, but let's. Just, I mean, the obvious problem with authoritarianism is that the the kind of person who would seize authority or be given it seems so likely to be bad that we're right to want to, to invoke the wisdom of the crowd insofar as it can ever produce anything like wisdom. I mean, right? in
2: this day and age, you know, when you're thinking of what democracy can produce.
0: There's, it's certainly possible that we're screwed no, no matter which path we take, right? I mean, it's, there's not, it's hard to be utopian down either path, but you have a single point of failure with an authoritarian system, right? If it's just one person who can decide to do everything or not, then if that person becomes deranged or came into office already deranged, <laughs> you, you have a, an enormous problem. And so we want to we place many smaller bets, it seems to me, but I, no, I can well imagine a, um, a condition where, I mean, this is something I talked about the other night with Eric Weinstein, I, I, are you familiar with the, the philosopher Nick Bostrom? Yeah. Uh-huh. So uh, Nick is a very unusual and, and very smart guy who focuses on questions of existential risk. And he, he recently wrote a paper, or at least I recently read this paper, I don't know, actually when, he, I don't know when he wrote it, but I think it's recent, titled The, the Vulnerable World Hypothesis. And what he imagines is, what he asks you to imagine is that we have an urn in front of us. He calls it the urn of invention. And the urn is filled with, with colored balls. Uh, and we have, we have been reaching into this urn rather compulsively, lo these millennia, pulling out either white or gray balls. And the white balls are inventions, pieces of technology, memes, cultural norms, institutions that have no real downside, right? These just make our lives better. And the gray balls are inventions and they're like that have benefits and costs, right? So, you know, being able to split the atom is one, right? You like we can produce energy, but it can produce bombs and, you know, waste when you produce energy. And so there are goods and harms that come from these inventions what he asks us to consider is that, that there's a black ball, or perhaps many black balls, in the urn of invention, and we just haven't pulled one out yet. And a black ball is a technology which is synonymous with the end of civilization, right? And he, he goes into great detail about what, what sort of thing this might be and what we would need to do to stabilize civilization in the face of this possibility. And so, I mean, the first thing you're asked to acknowledge is that it seems rather plausible that there is a black ball or two in the urn of invention, right? There are things we could discover that we can't undiscover that could spell our doom because it becomes so easy for one deranged person to destroy the lives of millions or billions. So, I mean, one example is that he calls it the easy nukes case. I mean, just imagine if it were just a fact of nature that splitting the atom is much easier than than it in fact is. And it turns out it only took taking two pieces of glass and a magnet and running some electric current through it, and then you've got a, you know, an atom bomb, right? Now, if it were that easy to make an atom bomb, one in a million people would make one you know, more or less every day of the week, and we would just see cities going up in, in mushroom clouds, right? It would be the end of civilization if it were that easy to make a, an atom bomb. So we're just lucky that it's hard enough to refine the, the, the fuel you know, and to build bombs, certainly large bombs. If climate change were going to be much worse than it seems likely to be if we're to, if we were talking about a twenty degree centigrade rise in temperature over the course of the next fifty years unless we got our act together, it just may in fact be the case that we can't get our act together in the face of that risk, and we're done for right so we're just we're relying on luck in many many places so what so the but the punchline of this essay is that the only scenario whereby we can actually deal with this risk and respond to it should it come to pass, I mean, should we, realize, should we have the time to realize that we have pulled a black ball from the urn, is to have what he calls a state of turnkey totalitarianism and hyper technological surveillance, obviously enabled by some AI that we have not yet built, but he's imagining us surveilling one another at all times in as in reasonable way as possible with the data anonymized in all the ways we would want it anonymized, but basically to, to deliver a system where we could intrude on your behavior very, very quickly, you know, minority report style, where we, you know, there's an AI at every moment of the day watching what you're doing with your hands, right, uh, in a world that has pulled the black ball. You know, if it is trivially easy for anyone in this room to weaponize the the flu of 1918 because all the data is out and you've got something on your desktop that can do it, right, and we can't uninvent this thing, then we need to know what you're doing with your hands. So the the net result of this essay, I'm going to have Nick on the podcast at some point, but the net result of this essay is to suddenly make me open-minded to something which, if described in the absence of having considered the urn of invention and some of these examples, sounds like just the most dystopian horror show imaginable. I mean, a perfect surveillance and an ability to turn on totalitarianism at a moment's notice. How could that be at all desirable? It becomes at least potentially desirable if you grant that it may, in fact, be the only stable state for civilization in light of what we're currently doing. And what we're currently doing is just reaching into the urn and pulling things out as fast as we can without giving any thought, really, to what's going on. So, anyway, that was a very long answer to a question you almost asked. Uh, Thank you. I'm uh, here. Thank you. All right.
6: So, Sam, I recognize that free will is fake. And um, in the mm-hmm. first few pages of Waking Up, you kind of put words to a conviction I had already held when you talked about doing MDMA with a friend and how it made you realize that you might as well have just been him. Um, we make choices, but we have no choice as to which choices we'll make. Hmm. So it's more—it's not as accurate to say we're constructing the cosmos than it is to say we are witnessing the cosmos. Um, a body is like a seat in a theater, and your seat simply determines the angle from which you experience the universe. So whether you're experiencing existence as Sam Harris or Kim Kardashian, there is a Sam Harris out there doing humanity the good that a Sam Harris does. Um, we might not want to use those spef- specific people as examples because you haven't really complained about being you. But let's imagine a person who just does whatever she thinks will help others and just really always feels and never accustoms to the sheer personal pain that comes with never doing what gives her pleasure and always sacrificing for others. Um, And the joy in um, causing others happiness never manages to outweigh all of this for her. Mm. So she goes to her grave having had a terrible time here. Um, So that's an unpleasant life, but it's a great thing that people have lived it. Um, My question to you is, would you rather live her life or a life where you just get whatever you want and the awesomeness of what you get always scales with exactly where, how spoiled you are in any given moment. So you're never bored and you never get burdened by a guilt from the fact that you're dragging everyone down. So keep in mind that okay. no matter what you pick, both lives happen.
0: So yeah, I'm feeling the, the burden of 3,000 people bore into my skull with their impatient gaze at the moment. So right, let, me, let me summarize the question I think you just asked, but thank you. It was, it was a good one. The The issue here is that Actually there's a name for the first condition you describe which is I don't know how current it is in the literature but some psychologists have talked about pathological altruism right so we have we have altruism which is great and we want more of it we but that we can there are people who are so self-sacrificing that it seems like a symptom of depression right i mean there're people who i mean there was i think it was a new yorker profile on a guy who, he's, I'm sure he's even more, he's more famous than my forgetting his name indicates, but he wanted to be essentially a, a compulsive organ donor. Like he gave away one kidney, he was giving away whatever he could give away, and then at a certain point you know, doctors stopped him. And you could imagine a life like that where you sacrifice your happiness to the benefit of as many people as you can possibly benefit and on your account derive no pleasure from it, Uh, or you could have a life that is kind of relentlessly selfish and pleasurable, which is better? I I I think the the first thing to recognize is that, on my account, neither is a peak on the moral landscape. There's got to be a better equilibrium still than either of those two. It's hard for me to decide between those two. I can tell you the one I want, because wanting is really only compatible with the one that is is feeling good. I mean, this is kind of a, a, a bug in the system. I can't really want to be the miserable person who was just useful to others. I mean, I I can say, I might be able to say if I stand outside myself, that's better for the world, right? But I think better still is, and actually more realistic still, is to recognize that selfishness and selflessness are two parts of the same object on, on some level, and they can be more aligned than most of us think. I mean, you can be wisely selfish in a way that shows up as a shocking degree of selflessness and generosity by normal standards. I mean, when you, when you realize that what you want is to have lots of friends who love you and to experience your love for them more and more and more, right, well then what does that look like when you're around other people? You don't look like a jerk. So I think we can, we can seek happiness in ways where sharing happiness and helping to engineer the happiness of others becomes a major source of our own happiness, and perhaps even the greatest source of our own happiness. And that's, you know, I think, and insofar as we don't feel like those sorts of people much of the time, I think we can get our priorities straighter. That is what it is to live an examined ethical life. This is actually something you would love to hear your opinion on, but I think you write about it in your book. I mean, envy, envy is a very common emotion, and it's an ugly emotion, right, and and it's not we've all had this experience of having a friend for whom something good has happened, and what you feel in the face of that, your friend's joy, is not pure sympathetic joy for their conquest. You feel some diminishment of your own happiness because you envy them, right? They just won an Academy Award, and you can't even sell your screenplay, right? And, you've, and you feel diminished in the presence of someone who ostensibly you love, but love consists in actually wanting them to be happy, right? Like if you really love them, you would want them to, w- to win the Academy Award. And so you're left with that tension. I, mean, well, I guess my question to you is, do you, do you see the, your emotional life that way? I mean, do you have those same judgments about envy being something you would want to outgrow and being well, incompatible with love in the moment that you're, you're I mean, feeling? You know,
2: envy is a net loss. I mean, it's not. That's an easy question. I mean, what's the right. benefit of envy? But
0: how does it relate to love?
2: Oh, I mean, clearly, as you pointed out, it, it diminishes love. I mean, it's incompatible, right. and you feel it's incompatible. So I, I don't think that, you know, if there was one emotion you could get rid of, that would be a strong candidate. Right. Sam, I
0: just want to thank you for your work. The podcast is very personally meaningful for me, and I really appreciate that. Thank you. Well- you're welcome. One of the constructs you've been wrestling with is this idea of social redemption for those people who have transgressed publicly. What can we do to allow them back into the fold? And I think a lot about, uh, we have a social psych person here, so I think of the fundamental attribution error and what we can do to challenge that distortion and allow for people to re-enter society after they transgress. Not psychopathically deviant people like Bill Cosby or Harvey Weinstein, Mm. but people that made. Uh, more minor transgressions. Yeah, uh, let me I'm going to add a little to that question and just deliver it to Danny. So, so since you're not on social media, you may be unaware of just how acute this need is. But what we what we need is some new norm around what constitutes an acceptable apology. Right? What, is, what does it mean yeah. to say you're sorry in a credible way? And how does one redeem oneself? after one has said or done something unethical. How do you think about that, the prospect of doing that? And I don't know well, I mean, if there's a connection to the attribution error. You,
2: you know, and I think, I think it's pretty clear that what's happening at the moment around the Me Too and is that transgressions of very different magnitudes are treated alike. I mean, there is a sense that, you know, we do not discriminate sufficiently between you know, things that were done in in the distant past and more recent things, severe and less severe. You know, you you had a senator driven from political life for, you know, what looks like a pretty trivial transgression. So that's clearly something has gone wrong, I think, in the, the... There ought to be more discrimination by severity than... And I don't know what the mechanism is that has produced this flattening of response that, mm. you know, every transgression is, is maximal. But
0: it's... But, but what, so what is the path out of the swamp? So like, what should be an adequate apology? What are the, the you know, dynamics uh, of a- actual redemption? Not, 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 uh, not, not merely getting away with it. It's not, it's not that I can say the thing that mollifies you and you forget about me. But what, is, what does it mean... To actually deliver a sincere apology that should be accepted.
2: You know, I th- I think that what what we have now, the situation that we have now, is that no apology is accepted. I mean, apologies are not even required. I mean, they would be re- they would be rejected, and that's that's the problem that I see in terms of what people want to see is genuine conviction you know that's that is what an apology is supposed to convey that's uh, that somebody is genuinely sorry that it happened and 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 that evokes you know when things are normal apologies can be accepted for provided the transgression was not too severe and the apology is obviously sincere and so on. When you're in a situation as we are now, I think apologies are almost irrelevant.
0: It's interesting. what You said when things are normal, but when things are also in extremis, we get to a point where apologies get readily accepted because it's the, only, it's, it's the last stop on the way to the end of the world. So you take something like Rwanda where you know, oh, yeah. neighbors are hacking each other to death with machetes and the, the recovery, the, the, the way you reboot from that condition of a failed state is you have something like a Truth and Reconciliation Commission where people just come forward. They confess and apologize for the, the horrendous things they've done. And everyone seems to acknowledge the only way to get out of the cycle of murder is to have apologies actually be received.
2: I mean, what you're describing here is something that happens between communities. It's not individuals. Mm. And, and for communities, it's the only possible solution. Right. I mean, the, you know, otherwise they cannot live together. So if they're going to live together, you must have some, you must have that type of action. And, and it's been negotiated successfully. Rwanda is certainly a relatively successful example. I think apologies at the individual level, the dynamics are completely different.
0: Okay, last question. So you can view
4: science and religion as, uh, and also certainly, um, well, okay, you can view science and religion as attempts to not merely live, but to also describe what happens when we live. And I think that tonight, uh, what we're trying to do and what uh, your career's, both of your careers, Sam's especially, uh, have been um, heading towards our describing the way that we describe the things that happen in our lives and the things that we observe. So uh, I'm wondering, what do you think is the collective benefit of continuing to abstract out our behaviors? And also, I'm wondering, how do I, as an individual, move my ideas from system one to system two? What do you and mean by, be by abstract out our behaviors? So, just kind of describe. So, instead of simply living the way that we live, being mm-hmm. conscious and aware of the way that we live, and and like applying those ideas elsewhere.
0: Well, I mean, what you're describing is is learning there, right? You want you don't want to keep making the same mistakes. Insofar as you can notice that they're mistakes in the first place, and so I think I think abstraction and finding you know heuristics, to use a loaded term in, in present company, is necessary. We, we, we do it effortlessly, and we want to get better at it, and we want to debug the ways in which we're bad at it. I, mean, I guess I asked you this question. I, I want to finish on your take on this, Danny, but you, you seem fairly skeptical about the prospects of our ever getting much better at cognition. Do you feel the same level of skepticism with respect to uh, well-being or getting the the experiencing and remembering selves into closer register. I mean, what, what what's the what's the human future of maximizing human flourishing? Well, like Well, to...
2: there is room for some, you know, to the extent that you can change the social matrix in which we live. Then, and and there are possibilities: train people or teach people how to live with each other. Then, then I think there is some room for optimism. Uh, the optimism is limited simply by the fact of human nature. I mean, human nature is not going to change, and a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about is simply manifestations of human nature, including, I think, the complexities of well-being and the remembering self and the experiencing self. There's not going to be a solution to that. You know, that disconnect is, is just mm. built in because our memories and our experiences don't match. And because our memories is all we keep. So there are aspects of the human condition and of human nature that are not going to change, and they constrain, you know, what we can hope for.
0: Well, I'm going to uh, disprove your thesis by remembering how much pleasure I took in this occasion to speak with you, Danny. So thank you so much. It's been an honor. Uh, and thank you all for coming. Okay, well that was fun. I really enjoyed that. After listening to that audio, I realized that I have a lesson on the Waking Up app that clarifies a few points I was making in the Q&A section of that event, so I'm going to include that here. This is not a guided meditation. This is a short talk on a related topic, and in this case the topic is the mystery of being. And as always, if you want more information on the Waking Up course, you can find that at WakingUp.com. Of all the solar systems in this universe that might sustain complex life, we find ourselves in this one. It took billions of years of evolution on this Earth to produce the people we now are. Our brains and bodies have evolved through millions of generations, reaching back to creatures totally unlike us, to animals so strange that we wouldn't even want them as pets, and finally to single-celled organisms. For ages, the world got on without us. But now we're here, and among all the possible people that could exist, we are among the tiny minority that actually do. And of all the periods in human history where we might have appeared, we live in this one, arguably the first in which it was possible to understand our circumstance in a truly universal sense. For the first time, a person's view of the world need not be dictated by the mere location of his birth or the religion of his parents. For the first time, the barriers of language and geography have totally fallen away. At this moment, you have instantaneous access to more information than even the greatest scholar or world leader did a generation ago. And yet on some level, we confront the same mystery of our existence that Socrates or the Buddha faced. The fact that you are you, the fact that you exist in this moment, is a miracle of sorts. There's something fundamentally inexplicable about it. There's no amount of knowledge that seems adequate to dispel the mystery of our appearance here. Whatever you know, whatever you believe, whatever you have done or hope to do, you have this moment of conscious life To contemplate, you have this minute, this hour, this day, and it will never come again. So, I want to talk for a few minutes about the intrinsic mystery of this circumstance. It really is the mystery of being. In science and philosophy, we often claim that we're in the business of getting rid of mysteries. And there is, of course, a sense in which that's true. If we don't know why people are getting sick, for instance, and we discover the virus that's causing it, well, then, The mystery has been solved. But there's another sense in which mystery never recedes. And if you pay attention, you can see that it's an ever-present fact of even the most well-understood phenomena. The philosopher Bertrand Russell described our most rudimentary knowledge of the world as knowledge by acquaintance. For instance, the color of a table standing before you. And here's a quote. The particular shade of color that I'm seeing may have many things said about it. I might say that it is brown, that it is rather dark, and so on. But such statements, though they make me know truths about the color, do not make me know the color itself any better than I did before. So far as concerns the knowledge of the color itself, as opposed to knowledge of truths about it, I know the color perfectly and completely when I see it, and no further knowledge of it is even theoretically possible. Thus the sense data which make up the appearance of my table are things with which I have acquaintance, and things immediately known to me, just as they are. Quote. Now what Russell seems to overlook here is that this basic knowledge, to which no knowledge can even be theoretically added, is a place where we uncover an intrinsic limit to understanding. When we consider any facet of experience, in this case a vision of color, if we can then stem the tide of our thoughts long enough to merely observe it as it is, the fact that we're in total ignorance of what it is can become obvious. What is the color blue? Not as a function of wavelengths of light or neurophysiology, but as it is directly perceived. We're really left with nothing to say but that it's blue, which of course does nothing to clarify things. In fact, it's not even blue, which is just a word. It's a noise we're making. Well, what we see before us is whatever it ineffably is. Focusing on this distance between concepts and experience is a means of sneaking up on a truth that is generally described in Buddhism as the truth of emptiness. The idea that no thing has intrinsic, independent existence in the way that it seems. Now, there are many ways to come at this insight into emptiness. And frankly, this line of inquiry may be too steep for some of you at this point. So I encourage you to return to it after you have more experience in the practice of meditation. But it is worth reflecting on even in the beginning. The moment we suspend the conceptual associations we have with a given object or perception, our knowledge about it, our direct experience of it, can grade into this experience of just pure mystery. We're left with this wordless intuition Of consciousness and its contents about which nothing more really can be said right now as you listen to me speak pay careful attention to the process of listening the feeling of sitting in your chair look closely at everything around you i'd like to suggest that while you know many things about the present moment you do not know what anything in itself is now look at your hand What is it? You can define this part of your body in language. You can call it hand. You can consider the fact that it's made of bone and muscle and threaded with blood vessels and nerves. But this is all a description about the object that you're now looking at. If you simply look at your hand and ask yourself, what is it? You might realize in a moment of rare open-mindedness that it is an absolute mystery. It is, in fact, as mysterious an appearance as any you could ever hope to find. Now, there are scientific arguments that can be arrayed against the mysteriousness of any object. We can point to the fact that the atoms in your hand were born billions of years ago in the belly of a star. And, in fact, some of these atoms may have inhabited several stars in succession. It's even possible that some atoms that were once in the bodies of historical figures, like Churchill or Cleopatra, are now in you. In fact, it might be descriptively true to implicate the entire universe in your hand, or in any objects being what it is. But no such litany of concepts or connections can account for the mystery that looms whenever you just look at something, closely, anything, however commonplace, and realize that while you might have volumes of knowledge about it, you don't have the slightest understanding of what it is in itself. Now, others have noticed this fact. Walter Benjamin, the German literary critic, stumbled upon this mystery in Marseille after smoking hashish for the first time. He distilled it in the phrase, how things withstand the gaze. And all things really do withstand the gaze. We confront the mystery of being in every moment. But we don't notice it, because this mystery is tiled over with concepts. Now, meditation isn't about understanding things conceptually. It's the ability to experience things more clearly, prior to concepts. It is the knowledge by acquaintance that Russell spoke of here, taken to the ultimate degree. And the more you practice it, you'll find that it really is a new form of intelligence, It leads to another way of being in the world, and one that can allow for a kind of psychological freedom that a continuous entanglement with concepts doesn't. There's a famous parable from the Buddha meant to get at this difference. A man is struck in the chest with a poison arrow, and a surgeon rushes to his side to begin the work of saving his life. But the man resists. He first wants to know the name of the fletcher who fashioned the arrow's shaft, and the type of wood from which it was cut, and the motive of the man who shot it, and the name of the horse upon which he rode, and a thousand other things that have no bearing at all upon his present suffering or ultimate survival. So this man needs to get his priorities straight. His commitment to thinking about the world results from a basic misunderstanding of his predicament. And though we may be only dimly aware of it, we too have problems that will not be solved by more thinking. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content like my Ask Me Anything episodes, as well as the bonus questions from many of these interviews. You'll also get advance tickets to my live events. You'll find all of these things and more at samharris.org. And thank you for supporting the show. Listeners like you make it possible.